We pray with me, Father, we pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and your incomparably great power for us who believe. Amen. My name is Sam, and um, I've been here before. Some of you know me. I'll introduce myself a little bit more as we go along. It's such a joy to be up here. Uh, often I am down there. And uh, to be with you this morning at Christ the King Anglican Church. Speaking of Anglicans, copy of my book, Our Anglican Heritage, is at the back of the church. I'll be teaching a Sunday school class starting in a few weeks, and this will be our text. Since I wrote it, I know it. <laughs> Anyway, if you'd like to join me for that. Uh, we are toward the end of a sermon series about the unforgiving minute that David um, has created. Uh, this was a poem that I knew, like perhaps many of you in my generation, I knew, I knew obviously of Kipling because of the Jungle Book and all of that, but um, I also knew about this poem. I was introduced to it in high school. And um, I never really got to the end of it because about two-thirds of the way through it, I was so depressed and uh, felt so inadequate about all these challenges that I had not met. If you can do the right thing when everybody's doing the wrong thing, if you can lift your head up when people are knocking you down, I was like, oh, gee. So I never really got to the end, which says, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, I ran track and I very rarely could make 60 seconds worth of distance run because I was a high jumper and we didn't run much, okay? We would just jump and then lay in the pit. That was what we did. Yours is the earth and everything that's in it and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Kipling wrote that at age 30, uh, reflecting on the life of a national hero of, among the British, uh, a guy named Leander Starr Jameson, who actually was an amazing guy. He was trained as a medical doctor, but he was also a playwright, a businessman, became the prime minister of what would become the nation of South Africa after he had led the revolt that threw out the Dutch. Uh, as Kipling looked at this incredible life, he said, uh, boy, th this guy packed a whole bunch of life into that span of time. And so uh, he wrote this uh, six years before he would uh, be named the Nobel Laureate in literature, the, only the sixth um, person to receive that prize. It reminds me of the hymn that's in your hymnal. If you get bored, you can look it up. It's number 470, once to every man and nation uh, comes a moment to decide. Uh, that was written by um, James Russell Lowell, uh, who was a, ironically, um, a abolitionist white supremacist, uh, believe it or not. Um, so he gets included in the, in the hymnal that's in your uh, hymn, uh, in your pew rack there. My mom used to say, time stops for no man, uh, which is in a sense the idea that life is, is moving on and, and you can't stop it. There's an inevitability about the movement of time. Uh, uh, one of my sons is a Navy, well, was a Navy SEAL. He's um, left the service now and doing something else. But I asked him how he got through Hell Week, and he said, I knew that they couldn't stop the clock. He said, I knew if I just would put one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other, no matter, they could control everything about me, when I ate, what I ate, when I slept, what I did, whether I got wet and sandy or whatever, but they could not stop the clock. And if I could just keep moving, uh, I would get through it. And so that is, in one sense, the message behind the unforgiving minute, the idea that we are given a certain amount of time and how we use it is God's gift 
the time is God's gift to us. How we use it is our gift back to him. Reminded of Hausman's poem, uh, loveliest of trees, the cherry now is hung with blooms along the bough. It stands about the woodland ride, wearing white for Easter tide. Now of my threescore years and 10, 20 will not come again. And he goes on to lament the fact that he's only given 70 years, 20 are already passed. He's only got 50 more springs to look forward to. If I was saying that, I'd say 68 of my 70 are gone. Uh, I've only got two more springs left. So uh, he was lamenting at 20. Ironically, Hausman lived to be 77, so he actually had 57 more to go. But the, as they say, the days are long and the years are short. Time does come and pass so quickly. And I reflect uh, on the fact that about 30 years ago, um, our roles were reversed, David and I. Uh, David was the acolyte in the church that I served, and I was the rector. And so I was walking behind him. Uh, and now here today, I am walking in front of him as he is the rector, and that is the proper positioning. And it seems like just yesterday that uh, David was a young man, high school student, and I was a younger man. Uh, time does move, and the minutes are in many ways unforgiving. All that was introduction. Two sermons today. A short one comes from the head. A little bit longer one comes from the heart. Here's the head one. This is the story, as many of you know, of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den because he refused to compromise. He was a young Jewish boy who had been taken from his home, from his family. He had been given a new name. He had been transported to a new city. He was uh, working for two different, not only two different bosses, but two different entire regimes. The Babylonians had taken him into captivity, and then the Medes and the Persians came in and took over. He had been given a position of responsibility. He was very gifted. He had even been given a new name. The, the, the folks gave him the name Belshazzar, which we, we don't see that. We, we see him consistently referred to as Daniel, which means God is my judge. And uh, the other, his other three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they, we, they are identified by their uh, Babylonian names. Um, he remained loyal to God, even having a crazy boss, a selfish boss, even given a, a horrible task, which as you read in there was to not to use the king's wealth to further the good of the people, but to protect the king's wealth, to guard and uh, make sure that the king didn't lose anything, not to use the resources of government to help the people, but to use the resources of government to enrich the king. And um, he managed to do that. And when uh, he was tricked, when the king was tricked in, uh, by using his ego into getting, uh, exposing David's devotion to his God, then uh, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Um, earlier, uh, we read that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been thrown into the fire. And we see perhaps only the second uh, theophany of, of perhaps the pre-incarnate Jesus there greeting them. They come out with nothing but a tan and uh, looks pretty good for them. Um, one of my friends said that that was one of his children's favorite bedtime stories. They, they called it Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. Uh, that was the way that they remembered that. And uh, 
Now Daniel is facing his own test and he's thrown into the lion's den and God preserves him. God honors his faith. Uh, what you don't read in the lesson as it was presented in your leaflet is that the story goes on. Darius, who was not a nice guy to begin with, even though Daniel served him faithfully, takes not only the people who had sort of tricked him into passing this law, which was based on his own ego, uh, but he throws their wives and children into the lion's den and they are a tasty treat for the lion. So it's not really a family story if you read it all the way to the end. It's not a good bedtime story for your kids, so I don't encourage you to read it to your kids all the way to the end. But it does bring me to the second sermon. The head sermon is, God will put us in tough situations. If we are consistent with our values, if we serve him, then sometimes God protects us and guides us and he gets honored. And Darius, at the end of the story, at least the end of the story that you read to your kids, says, oh, we're all gonna worship the God of Daniel and Daniel's God is the greatest God and everybody's happy at the end. Of course, that isn't the way the story turns out if you read it all the way to the end. And as Orson Welles said, uh, if you wanna have a happy, you can always have a happy ending depending on where you stop the story, right? You know, if you wanna have a happy ending, just stop the story here instead of here. Daniel, of course, eventually did die, as did Shadrach, Meshach, and Tibet we go. Um, and Persia did not become Christian, I mean, did not become Jewish, um, never became Christian, really. Uh, today it's Muslim, and we are on the verge of a war with them, the same group of people. Um, and we even see this in the lives of some of the folks in the New Testament. We, we see it in the life, for example, of Peter in the, in the book of Acts. And in chapter two, Peter preaches a heck of a sermon and gets thousands of converts, okay? Wonderful, wonderful thing. Five chapters later, Stephen preaches essentially the same sermon and gets killed. A few chapters after that, Peter gets thrown in prison and an angel comes and releases him. About that same time, James, the brother of Jesus, gets thrown in prison and gets beheaded. It's beginning to look like Peter is gonna dodge every bullet that shot his way until we read from tradition that Peter ended up being crucified upside down in Rome. Jesus even foreshadowed this with Peter when he said to him at the end of the Gospel of John, as Peter looked back at John the Apostle who was writing that and said, hey, what's gonna happen? Jesus said, that's none of your business. And he said, well, Jesus said, you know, you're gonna die a pretty horrible death. And Peter said, well, what about John? What about him? And Jesus, in that famous line, what is that to thee, follow thou me? In other words, it's none of your business what happens to other people. Some people may have a happy, peaceful ending. Other folks may not. It's not a reflection on whether you are following the Lord or not. Polycarp of Smyrna uh, in the year 156 was brought up on charges by the Roman Empire. And um, he was told to recant his Christian faith. And he said, how can I? I've served him my whole life. I can't do it now just because you're threatening me. And they said, if you don't recant your faith in Jesus, we're going to take away all your property. And he said, it's not mine anyway. I gave it to the Lord when I became a Christian. They said, well, take away your freedom. We'll lock you up. He said, I'm a slave of Christ. You know, I don't have any freedom. I don't, you can't take away my freedom. I don't have any. They said, well, take away your life. He said, my life is hidden with Christ in God. I don't, it's not my life anymore. So they killed him. They, they tied him up to a stake and they burned him. And again, he just got a tan. And so they decided they'd stick him in the side with a spear. And when they did, according to that same tradition, uh, out came a dove and enough blood to quench the flames, which to me is an indication that Christians hate 
unhappy endings. We have to sort of tidy it up, don't we? We have to find some way to make it that this hero won in this life, in this world. We have to, we have to find some way to finish the story with a happy ending. And so I doubt very seriously that a dove flew out of his side and that enough blood came out of him to quench the flames. I'm pretty sure he did die. He died a martyr's death. And I'm pretty sure that right now he's rejoicing with the Lord and probably getting a big kick out of this. But I don't think a dove flew out. I think that's the church's way of trying to make it seem like everything's okay. Everything's okay in this world here. A woman named Kate Bowler, um, who is a professor of history at Duke, uh, and a wonderful Christian woman. You can Google her, YouTube her, whatever. Uh, she had just finished a, finished a book on the health and wealth movement in the United States, the prosperity gospel thing, the, the uh, Joel Osteen kind of Christianity. And um, ironically, she found out, she's a very young woman with a young child, she found out she had cancer. And as she reflected on that as a Christian, having just done this book on the health and wealth thing, that if you follow Jesus, your, your life is going to be great and everything's going to come your way and all of that stuff. She wrote a book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. And I highly recommend it for thoughtful Christian people. She, says in, uh, she said in one interview that I saw that somehow Christians have this idea that all of these bad things happen and then somewhere out there in the future is a giant equal sign and God makes everything right. God balances the equation. Rotten thing, rotten thing, rotten thing, rotten thing, rotten thing, and then finally some really, really, really good thing, and the equation balances, and the universe sort of makes sense. It's a, it's a dangerous thing to disagree with a professor at Duke, but I'm going to disagree with her on this one. And I think the Apostle Paul would too. There's not a giant equal sign out there. I think there's actually a less than sign. Because the Apostle Paul says that all these rotten things that happen to us are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for these light momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The J.B. Phillips translation puts it this way. These little troubles, which are really so transitory, are winning for us a permanent, glorious, and solid reward out of all proportion to our pain. In other words, when we finally get to the end, it's not, there's not going to be an equal sign. There's going to be a less than sign. Now, I, don't, I will admit, I don't quite understand that. But God doesn't seem to shy away from that notion. In the book of Joel, which comes not too long after the book of Daniel, it says this, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, the chewing locust. He just kind of goes on talking about these locusts and all the rotten things that they do. My great army, which I sent among you. God does not shy away from taking responsibility. God does not shy away from saying, you know that time that that awful thing happened to you? It's not like I forgot about you. I was there. I was with you 
Why, as Paul said, to prepare us for the glory that transcends them all. In the end, it will seem like just pulling off a Band-Aid to reveal a healing that has already taken place. We don't have all the information. We can't judge what's happening to anybody else or even to ourselves, as Paul would say in his letter to the Corinthians. I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. Indeed, he says, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me, which is the phrase, Daniel. The Lord is my judge, Daniel. He's there saying, look, you don't have the information to be able to try to figure out what's going on in your life. You don't have enough perspective. You don't have the big picture. God alone can see all the pieces on the chessboard. God alone can see what's going to happen to you in the future. God alone can put it in the right perspective. There's a wonderful song that got me through some very tough times written by a guy named Fernando Ortega. And um, it's, it's, in your, it's in your leaflet. Um, and I was curious about what caused him to write this song, and so I did some research. It turned out that Fernando was uh, reflecting on his own mortality. He was reflecting on the pain and suffering of this life and about our role in it and how it all fits together. And he wrote this very simple but beautiful song, when the morning falls on the farthest hill, I will sing his name, I will praise him still. When dark trials come, my heart is filled with the weight of doubt, I will praise him still. For the Lord our God is strong to save from the arms of death or from the deepest grave. Job, in those chapters that or. Fernando Ortega was reflecting on, Job 12 to 14, says this in Job chapter 12, verse 5, those who are at ease have contempt for misfortune. Isn't that true? Those for whom life works, those who were blessed to not be born with a disease or a disability, those whose children turn out perfectly, those who happen to be in the right place at the right time, have contempt sometimes for those of us who weren't so blessed, who weren't so fortunate. And yet God is at work in all of us. In chapter 13, verse 15, he quotes Job as saying, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him, yet, second half of that verse, yet I will argue my ways to his face. Job says, I'm I'm expecting an explanation. He's saying, though he kill me, I will trust in him, but I want to know what you were thinking, God. <laughs> Which to me is a very real response. Okay, God, I'm going to trust you on this one, but someday I want to know what you were up to because this stinks. And if you're going to pull this kind of stuff on me, you better have a pretty good reason. And my hunch is that God does when we see the big picture. My son, the son who became a Navy SEAL, um, played football and he had a wonderful football coach. He was a great guy. He was a wonderful PE teacher and it's a good thing he was a PE teacher because he didn't, 
He wasn't so good at, at the grammar stuff. And he had 100 T-shirts printed up that said, to get the gain, you must bear the pain. But he spelled bear, B-A-R-E. Um, and he made them wear it because he didn't have enough money to print new T-shirts until finally the parents said, this is embarrassing. Uh, tell you what, we'll, re we'll get the T-shirts printed up again. So even though he was a wonderful football coach and a wonderful guy and probably a very good PE teacher, he didn't get the grammar right. But I'll tell you one thing, he got, he stumbled onto a truth. And that is that one of the ways that God gives us the gain, one of the ways that we are healed is by bearing, B-A-R-I-N-G, our pain. Not just by bearing it and hunkering down and saying, okay, I'm just going to get through this, but by sharing our pain, by opening up with people who love us and opening up to the God who loves us and sharing with God in an honest way, the way Job did, the way the psalmist did over and over and over again to say, Lord, I don't get this. I, where else can I turn? But I am in so much pain right now. Please be my comfort. Please be present for me. Please help me to see not the equal sign at the end, but the less than sign and to hope in that. If we want to experience that, we have to bear, B-A-R-E, our pain. As I sing this song to myself over and over and over again, the Fernando Ortega song, the phrase, the weight of doubt struck me as well. It reminded me of the quote that I said to you earlier from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, for this, these light momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. The Hebrew word for weight is the word kavod, and it means substance, it means weight, literally weight, substantial. And Paul is saying, the real substance of our life is going to be seen when we are brought into the presence of the Lord and the weight of glory will, if you put it on a scale, the suffering will just go boom like that compared to the weight of the glory that is going to be revealed in us. And I contrast that with the weight of doubt from the song. We can choose which weight we bear. We can choose to focus on the weight of doubt or the coming weight of glory. And I'm going to play one last little word game with you, another homonym. You can do weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, or you can do weight, W-A-I-T. In Job 14, it says, if someone dies, will they live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. As we wait for the weight of glory, as we endure, as we put one foot in front of the other, we need to be conscious that God has not forgotten us, that God is at work, that God is not only sort of trying to figure out how to rewire things, but that God is calmly, peacefully, passionately, self-givingly involved in the things that are happening in our life. And he wants to meet us there. 
As a matter of fact, that's the only place he can meet us, is at the foot of the cross, where we bear our pain in order to see the gain. When the morning falls on the farthest hill, I'll seek his face, I'll praise him still, yet when the weight of, when the dark clouds come and my heart is filled with the heaviness, the weight of doubt, I'll praise him still. For the Lord my God, he is strong to save from the arms of death, from the deepest grave. He gave us life in his perfect will. And by his grace, I will praise him still. Diane's going to sing that for us, and then I'm going to ask us to stand and sing it together, and then we'll lead right into the creed. <laughs> 